This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm Redditor Chapter of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own, and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We've got such a great show for you today. In the studio, two former Federal Reserve Bank presidents talk about this week's rate decision, the global economy. Professor Siegel, of course, on the markets. Uh, Professor, what some interesting news to go into the weekend, Friday wow. morning, China trade, Brexit. Fed week? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I actually think both of these things are favorable. Well, the China news deal, listen, I've been, we've been talking about that for weeks. I said there was going to be a deal. Now, this isn't a full deal. I'd like to see a full deal. But I said I didn't think 25% tariffs were ever going to come in because that's really, I think, damaging to the economy. And I, he can't risk that. Uh, margins aren't you know, big enough. He needs every vote. So I mean, this this is we're gonna we're gonna see this is really good for the market. I I thought the Brexit, I think, I mean Johnson was expected and the Conservatives expected to win. I didn't, almost no one saw the magnitude of the Conservative sweep uh, in the UK. It was it was massive um, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I mean it, it's also a very pro Brexit. The pound jumped. The, the FTSE jumped over 5% so far today. Um, we'll see how it closes, but it's um, that's a huge move. Anytime markets are you know, up or down more than 5%, it's one of the big moves. Uh, the pound also really jumped um, uh, dramatically. Um, you know, I, I think not only is it something on Brexit, but it was also a big rejection of the hard left position of labor. I mean, in, in many ways, I mean, you, you could – the hard position in the Democratic Party on the left, well, Bernie Sanders being a socialist, there, there were definitely – you know, Jeremy Corbyn uh, also attracted very similar sort of people, but the, you know, the British really rejected that. Um, you One wonders whether if Bernie Sanders, who is resurgent again, by the way, in the markets for being the nominee as Warren has fallen – um, you know, would that, you know, would the you know, American public I th- reject that, too? So there's mm. really implications what happened in the U.K., I think, for um, for the U.S., just like the Brexit vote was really had, uh, you know, forebodings of the Trump vote that that took place uh, two years later. So that that was that was a very, very big. I think I mean. Obviously, a deal and this, I think, are both very, very positive. I think uh, the the market hit all time highs uh, uh, yesterday. I think it's going to go to all time highs today, and I think we're going to end a strong December uh, in the markets. Um, we saw a little bit of um, uh, risk on. We saw the Treasury bonds sell off and the yields go up a little <clears throat> bit. I, uh, you know, with a strong, we can see the yields maybe going above two now on the ten year. If, if uh, you know people gain that confidence back uh, uh, in the markets, but let me say in 2020, you're confronting a full valuation with earnings that are not going to be surging, and there is still a political election going forward. So I I, I see a a really nice market maybe in the next 30 days, but you know I, I see uh, you know more choppiness. Then afterwards, it's going to be harder. The catalyst next year. Yeah, what's the catalyst the going to be surprise. next year? The Fed no longer the issue. The global trades moving yeah. forward. The, by the way, let's talk about in the Fed. 
I was surprised. Only four, only four members thought we should raise by one basis point in this in the coming year. Now you you got to realize in the last dot plot, half of them didn't even think we should <laughs> take the drop that we did. I mean, you know, we haven't had any weak thing, and then all of a sudden, all right, we did that. Now, you know, okay, we're there. Let's stay there forever. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's sort of like where you are is where you are, and if things are going well, I don't want to, you know, change anything out going there. Uh, but, I mean, I would, we, we have wonderful guests here that, that have been at the table. I've never been at that table um, where it happened, as they say, and, uh, you know, I'd love to hear their, uh, you know, take on uh, the Fed now and uh, what might happen in 2020. Let me just do a brief introduction to our guest. We've got Dennis Lockhart, Dennis Lockhart, the retirement president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, Charlie Plosser, the retired president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, one of our local hometown uh, Fed presidents. Um, they're both in town for the Global Interdependent Centers Conference, and you guys are both on their College of Central Bankers. You guys are- yeah, I'm going back to college. <laughs> <laughs> I needed some remediation, people thought. <laughs> so how, uh, maybe, Dennis, how did you think, uh, What? Where, where is your thoughts on what the Fed is doing, the in inflation dynamics? Are they trying to just spur inflation with, with this outlook? Well, inflation is really not an issue, if, except that it is below the target. And I think what is most on their minds is the uh, the decline over some time of inflation expectations and, and the uh, implication of inflation expectations actually anchoring uh, well below the 2% target. And I think that's a focus. Uh, for 2020, I actually don't see much happening, quite frankly. And the way I think about uh, 2020 is, is uh, if the momentum we are seeing in 2019 carries over to the first half of the year, and I think there's a very good chance that that's the case, and you get past the July meeting, then the FOMC is very unlikely to, to do anything in the two meetings before the election. So that takes you to the December meeting, which is almost like saying there's nothing going to happen for the year in my analysis. So. Yeah. Um, I think they're on hold. I think they've got a setting that they're comfortable with. Um, and the, um, the bars have been set high for a move in either direction. Yeah. Charlie, you have... Actually, I, 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 uh, I agree with Dennis. I think that's kind of where they are. I, I, would, I think I would emphasize that, that um, as Dennis did, that you know, next year is an election year. And the, partly the bar is high, I think, because... <laughs> The Fed's always has already flirted with being accused of being political in one way or another, and there's been a lot of discussion about that. And I think next year they're going to be really gun shy, not to not, without a really good case uh, for doing much of anything. Um, but that's not to say it couldn't happen. And uh, I think that um, uh, the markets and observers need to be very cautious in taking the dot plots as sort of a forecast of what might actually happen because I think the Fed's trying very hard to get back to their prior view of making policy more data dependent, which in my view they kind of abandoned this year, uh, which I think was a mistake and sort yeah. of a poor Charlie. communication. Mm -hmm. But but they're trying to get back to that, so I, I hopefully um, – if the data does change, they may have to act. But they're, but as Dennis what, said, what the, bur the, the, bur the, the, the burden's pretty high. What do you think if there's going to be risk, upside? What is your biggest worry? Would it be upside or downside uh, in 2020? Um, I guess my – I think the probabilities are more for a, for some downside risk. But, but you know, um, I think that, you know, who knows? I mean – a trade deal really unfolds in a more positive one. You could get you could get some stuff moving to the upside, and if consumer remains strong and a trade deal comes through, and business investment picks up, the Fed may find itself in a position where you know growth may be a lot stronger than they forecast. Remember, this year growth has been 
about where the Fed expected it to be since last January. <laughs> it hasn't really changed. So when you say they weren't data dependent, what maybe expand on that? I'm trying to get back to data dependence. Well, I think their 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 policy choices and their communication of their policy choices. This is just my view. Um, through the spring, winter and spring, and into the summer when they started cutting rates, had very little to do with the data. It had to do with, with U.S. data. It had to do with something going on overseas. The prospect of a policy change, whereas the Fed has never, to my knowledge, and I don't think ever, reacted in advance of a policy decision by the government. It has never acted in advance of a proposed tax cut. It has never acted in advance of a proposed tax hike. And for the Fed in this particular situation to sort of act in advance of policy decisions by the administration or by some foreign government on trade, for them to act in advance of that decision is highly uh, unusual and I think problematic because it drags them into politics. I think they were so, cowed by the term structure. I think that that kind of was really worried them, uh, or certainly a number of people there. And uh, so they were trying to, you're right, uh, let's think up reasons why the long bond is going, then maybe then we should keep the short rate below the long rate. But it was sort of, I th you know, I think that 10 year was a big influence on the direction. I don't know, Dennis, well, how do you feel on on that issue. Well, I, I, I agree with uh, Charlie that probably if there is going to be a move, it, it would be uh, to cut rates uh, mm -hmm. because of something developing in the economy, which I can't see at the moment, right. but something mm -hmm. developing that, that uh, is worrisome. Uh, I'll point out that the posture this year was a risk management posture, and the cuts that were made, the three cuts that were made, uh, through the, the 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 last meeting were uh, characterized as insurance cuts. That's to some extent in tension with the notion of data dependence um, because it's preemptive. And uh, I would argue that the, the Fed is in a period in which a preemptive approach to policy may be necessary because of the policy rate being set so low and so close to the zero bound. And uh, that puts a premium on acting early with all the risks that go with that, that you are reacting to data prematurely and get a false positive and may even have to reverse the, uh, the action. That's not a, a comfortable place to be, but because the policy rate is so low, um, they are, have to really guard against getting to the zero bound in, uh, in a downturn of some kind. Uh, and the zero bound, obviously, much closer now with the you know, interest on excess reserves at 1.55%. Uh, you don't have much to cut on, on the downside unless you want to go negative, which, like the Europe, uh, uh, and, and, and that's a whole other... Uh, and that's a whole other set of issues. Um, can I, Jeremy, yeah. can I, I just, I, Dennis and I probably disagree a little bit on this, but yeah. I'd like to give a little twist to uh, the preemptive nature of this uh, because I think I've always argued that the Fed being pre pre uh, preemptive, at least in the sense of following its forecast, has been historically a way the Fed has acted, and I haven't been terribly critical of that. Um, and pretty supportive, but I think this particular case is different. Why? And the reason it is is one, it's preemptive in the following sense. Uh, during the crisis, you'll remember um, uh, that the Fed argued that rate cuts and monetary policy stimulus was encouraging risk taking, encouraging people to take on debt, encouraging people to take risk in order to stimulate aggregate demand. In this particular case, if you view the primary shock as being some trade shock policy decision out in the future that may be taken either by China or by the U.S. or some combination of the two, um, you know, uh, with business investment at, a, at very low growth rates, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about that. And for the Fed to take a policy action that says – 
we want you to go out and be risk takers. <laughs> we want you to take risk. Businesses, on the one hand, are going to look at that and say, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. It would be dumb policy for me to go out and do that. So, A, it's not going to work for stimulating business investment. B, if it does work, if firms actually go out and take that risk and make bets on the future through debt acquisition or lending or or buying, then at some point in the future, beyond the control of the Fed or anything the U.S. domestic economy does, at some point in the future, those risks are going to come home. Policy decisions going to get made. There's going to be some re resolution of that uncertainty. And what are you left with at that time? The Fed is left with an economy where they've encouraged risk-taking. The risk gets resolved through no action of their own. The risk gets resolved, and what you've created is a bunch of winners and losers who have taken risk positions in the economy, and you're going to have winners and losers. And what, have you, what has the Fed done? Has it increased the economy? Not particularly. It's just added volatility to the economy in the future. So I, my, my view is that in this particular instance, being preemptive is, uh, amounts to introducing more volatility into the economy potentially than not. And it probably won't be effective anyway. Let me just reintroduce who we're talking to here. We've got Charlie Plosser, <laughs> former head of the president of the Federal Reserve, Cent uh, Federal Reserve Bank. We've got Dennis Lockhart, former president of the Atlanta, Cent the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank. Yeah, I, I, Charlie, but isn't counter-cyclical policy all about when, when we, the economy's going down, you want to lower rates, you want to encourage investment, you want, we, basically we think risk aversion becomes temporarily too high, and if we can offset some of that, not all of it's going to be right investment, we know, but isn't isn't that basically the essence of countercyclical monetary policy? And that's if that's if the that's if stimulating aggregate demand sort of can do something about the aggregate supply shock that's being created. Well, I mean, that's the old Keynesian view view that you 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 know. You, so you're, you're saying what you're saying is this trade shock is, is different a, is, is a supply shock, which certainly would be absolutely uh, on on that. It's um, on the distribution. Although system. some say the uncertainty of it has has damped. Well, the uncertainty the uncertainty the source of the uncertainty is the damage that a trade shock can do to supply change. And the yeah. ability to produce, okay. so not not necessarily posing it that way is yeah, is a supply because I, I you know t t taking you up on that that was one of the failures I thought of the Fed back in the seventies and eighties they thought the oil shocks were and and they added stimulus when it was really right. a supply shock. shock right and and that so I think that I, that's what you're saying I, here I, is that it's trade a, there's shock some similar that, similarities yeah what um, how do, how would you take that Dennis I, I think the um, biggest influence on the business community in, in terms of investment is the level of uncertainty and we may be just this week and today actually seeing some of that uncertainty dissipate but if you step <coughs> very far back or very high take a high level view um, a, a global business leader who's operating around the world or has long supply chains is uh, looking at a picture that I think is, is quite uncertain in terms of the total system in which that business is operating. The post-World War system led by the United States, which was a free trade system with the U.S. projecting its, um, its uh, power globally to maintain security, has worked rather well for the last 70 years. But I'd argue that it's in play. And uh, business leaders don't know what's going to follow. Is it going to be a more protectionist environment, much more protectionist environment, institutionalized protectionism? Um, so it's the uncertainty factor that hold, holds back business investment. Let us hope that uh, with uh, the news today on the trade deal that maybe some of that is uh, dissipating. We should also say that we've had ups and downs of optimism on the trade deal <laughs> <laughs> so many times. Well, that's makes it that, 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 that you know. I mean, I guess there's announcement. Is is it really going to be signed, or is Trump going to say no? It's not there. But that's another reason why the Fed shouldn't be engaging in policy decisions based on such 
ephemeral <laughs> changes in sentiment about trade or or the economy or something else. I Charlie, think that's very I, risky. I think the the tricky aspect of of um, the Fed's decision making this year was that they were really looking at external to the United States risks mm-hmm. and worried about how they might uh, basically come home and, and have an effect on uh, the domestic economy. And in the time we were at the Fed, I, I became convinced that the United States is not impervious to global of influences, but is a lot more insulated than most countries. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. economy is much more self-contained, has its own internal motor, which is basically the consumer at the moment at least, <coughs> and um, it, it may not actually be that much affected by global events. Yet, this year, it seemed that the rate cuts uh, were really premised on global risk, the global risk picture. How much of it is, you know, stimulating risk assets, the markets were, maybe the economy was insulated from this global trade, but the markets reacted very strongly, and then that could feed into the consumer picture if the markets had this spillover well, effect. Jeremy, you, you raise an issue that, that I've thought about for a long time and I, to some extent, have some frustration with. The logic of the financial markets isn't exactly the logic of the economy, of the Main Street economy. And the Main Street economy has a, um, a dynamism and, a, and a, a life that is not uninfluenced by the financial markets but not directly correlated or not completely correlated. So the financial markets can go up and down depending on the trade deal or depending on whatever factor, and Main Street America just continues to move ahead. Dennis is right on there. I think that's an important recognition and, uh, and realization, and it needs to be important for the Fed as well in thinking about how it responds to what's going on in financial markets and how responsive it should be or needs to be or they want it to be. And I think the the danger of becoming, let's say, too responsive, whatever you want to be mean as being too responsive, is the Fed policy then becomes whipsawed by tweets from the president that changes interest rates or the market. And, and, and the Fed needs to get itself above those things. And so I think Dennis is exactly right. It's very frustrating and difficult, by the way, for the Fed to raise its awareness and resist that temptation to be whipsawed. And if you if you go back to a year ago, December last year, remember when the markets were so volatile, um, and there was a pivot that began early in 2019 by, by the FOMC, I think it's a, f- a fair critique that they had the markets on their minds mm-hmm. when they pivoted so strongly. I agree and with that. Pr- Professor 100%. Siegel, you were here bound to the table to Loretta that she made a mistake that, that well, not she, in the, in the committee, that they went too aggressive. Well, that- the December, you know, when the, the, when, when they, when, when the dot pot a year ago showed three hikes in 2019, when in fact we had three cuts, um, uh, you know, and and the market said, guys, uh, the whole structure of interest rates is much lower than you think, and uh, especially with these uncertainties uh, going there, and you can't go up that high, and uh, you know, uh, obviously the the verdict of the market. I mean, the verdicts of the market. I mean, go all the way back. Remember the Greenspan put. I mean, uh, you know that. Oh yeah, he's gonna. You know, when he came in in 87, it was sort of, yeah, they got, you know, the Fed has got our back uh, on the markets. It, it goes way back before this Fed. Oh, uh, it was it was a Bernanke put? Yeah. Now there was, there a, was Bernanke, a Yellen put, was, now there's a uh, well, And it put. started with the Greenspan put. <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, do you so, think that's a good thing? I, I think, okay, so do you, should you? Markets are not always right. They're often wrong, but are they more, more right than the Fed uh, in a way um, which, uh, like all forecasters, has been challenged? So in a way, um, yeah, listen, we, we know about the predictive power of, the, for instance, the term structure. 
And I think that, you know, that there was only one false signal in 65 years. Now, there are some, we were talking about some of the things that have brought down the term premium, so I don't think flatness is as serious as it once was. But nonetheless, you know, um, you know, you, you know, James Board's point has been, you know, that they fooled me once, they fooled me twice, this doesn't really matter, I'm not going to be fooled again, and, you know, has come out so strong, came out so strong. So, in a way, you know, you should listen to the market, or you shouldn't ignore the market. The policy right. policymakers listen to the market. They pay attention, and and and, and uh, Charlie will remember we got updates on market and predictions of market reaction to the policy decision yeah. in every meeting. Every meeting. That's that's different than saying that policy is set to respond to the latest market move, and. Um, in my experience, we focused uh, really dominantly on domestic mainstream economy data and then took into consideration what the market was doing and market reaction. But that's a far cry from saying the policymakers are the handmaiden of the markets. Yeah, I don't think they're fully dependent, but I, I think the markets – have become more important than maybe they once were to how the Fed is guided on that. They shouldn't be. We know there's a lot of volatility in the markets that doesn't, but you got to think about, well, especially on the bond market, what what is it signaling? Because, again, it, it hasn't given that many false signals um, that you would, you would tend. I mean, and clearly, I mean, when Jay Powell was – so he gave his December address earlier this week. Remember, the, 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 while he was giving his December address last year, the Dow fell 700 points, the most ever during any address by any chairman. Like, are you kidding me? We were just talking about the Fed, the markets, and whether the, the Fed is too beholden to the markets. But, but Charlie, I want to come back to something you were saying earlier about how uh, you know where you sort of disagreed with some of the the insurance discussion on on how the Fed was communicating. How do you think they could have been communicating and and sort of where they could have done better? Yeah, I want to go back to Dennis's comment uh, shortly before the break about at this December and then in January, where Chairman Powell obviously made a pivot <laughs> in his view of the path of of rates um, and became as some people would say, much more dovish. Mm -hmm. And he continued that signaling, and other members of the committee, particularly John Williams and Rich Clarida, um, sort of followed up on that during the course of the winter and spring. And by then, I think the, uh, they were emphasizing foreign slow growth in the world outside the United States, not in the United States, but outside the United States, um, the risk of trade disputes and so forth and so on. Um, there were some noises about inflation. Um, what I was saying earlier was I think the, the discussion about insurance and foreign growth was sort of off the path of what I would call data dependence for the Fed. It sort of reached outside uh, the, the, the normal framework. I would have been much happier had uh, they focused more on inflation. Inflation is below target. I think the Fed, there are two challenges. One is there's always the worry that inflation expectations become unanchored, and that's very dangerous. And you or, don't want, anchored, or, or, or anchored too low. Or, or anchored too low. Um, and so I think uh, that was, that's reason to be concerned, but that's not a new concern. That's been lurking around for 10 years. Um, but had the Fed built the case for cutting rates in July because they were worried about inflation – that would at least, in my mind, have been a coherent more argument, consistent more consistent, more data-dependent, mm -hmm. and would have been a coherent argument. I might have disagreed with that uh, because I'm not sure that cutting rates 25 basis points in July was going to do anything for inflation expectations. But that's a different, that's a well, different question. Charlie is but, making a good point. But, but, but at least had they focused on inflation – the internal communication and argument about the Fed being data dependent would have been a, a lot stronger and a lot more coherent than it turned out to be given the course of the next three meetings. I, I think Charlie's making a very good point here. I mean, 
what what also was happening when the tenure was collapsing was the difference between the tips and the nominal right. bond really also went down dramatically. That's something the Fed has always looked at. That's their primary measure, inflationary expectations. We do know there's risk premiums. They, they use other things too. But if they had said, we see that tremendous contraction there, that worries us rather than the 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 right. statements they made it would be it would be more consistent with what they've done in the past i, 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 think I just think the communications true. would have been better and less confusing because it stood what the mar people reacted to the cut in july in particular they didn't know whether it was a political cut whether the fed mm -hmm. was caving to the administration or or what because he and, still wants us to be at negative. He yeah. still says Europe and yeah. Japan, so, they're at they're so, so low. So I, I think the Fed created confusion for itself that it didn't need to. <laughs> That's now, can, why is inflation so low and not, not doing anything? And, and can the Fed actually move inflation? Well, I think that's a that's a really good question, is whether the Fed and whether the tools the Fed deploys can actually move inflation uh, higher on a sustained basis. I think there's a fair amount of doubt around that, but they're hopeful. No one has sort of given up on the Phillips curve entirely. The most recent wage gains are, appear to be picking up some uh, momentum. I think many on the committee still believe that that will basically flow through to the inflation rate, um, and they will get the rate of inflation um, closer to target. Uh, there is an interesting kind of uh, discussion going on uh, related to the framework review that they've undertaken about whether or not they should um, <coughs> actually uh, seek to get above 2% and then hold mm -hmm. it, try to hold it there for several years. Uh, Governor Brainerd has had a speech at the end of November where she said she would be comfortable with five years of the inflation rate being between two and two and a half percent. So, and we should note that always Powell says the symmetric two percent target. He's, and, and he's that, emphasized that, that, that point. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, that adjective is very important. Uh, symmetric means we can be a little above when when we can be a little below. But the question is. Can they do it? Can they do it? <laughs> yeah, the question. So, so let me let me let me yeah. follow up because I, I agree with everything Dennis said. I think the real question, and why I said I didn't really think cutting twenty five basis points was going to help very much on the inflation, although at least would have been a, a an argument that was within the context of what they did. I think two things. One is inflation has been below target, not a lot. I don't consider it very seriously below target, but that's a different. But I do think it raises the question about this strategy review the Fed's doing. And what seems to be on the table is lots of things like average inflation targeting or price level targeting, kind of the same thing, you know, or things or, you know, I, I, my reaction to that is partly, well, you know, they can't even get it to 2%. Why do they think they can control an average and when if it's above, get it down and when it's below, get it up? They haven't been able to do that yet. So changing to a strategy like that doesn't sound very hopeful to me. I think the bigger question, as Dennis alluded to, is um, is the Fed able to control inflation as precisely as it would like, or at least as the, um, which I think is less precisely than the markets want it to, but can they control inflation with its traditional tools that it's been using before? And I think interest on reserves and uh, the collapse of velocity, the collapse of the money multiplier, the change in the banking systems raises some questions about the transmission mechanism of monetary policy. To my way of thinking, the real stretch, uh, strategic question the Fed needs to deal with is that question as to sort of what tools do they have and to how raise to raise inflation yeah. and quit saying we're going to control it more precisely yeah, because they, ca they can't. So let's ask the question, what tools do we have? How have those tools changed in response to the financial crisis, interest on reserves, and all the other stuff that's been going on in the financial market? And I don't, frankly, I don't know the answer to that question, but boy, that seems to be the $64 yeah, trillion dollar question. Exactly what, how, what level we should do, let's ask, can we do it at all? Right? That's or how do we do it? And how do we do it? Uh, and 
you know, we should talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm an old monitor, uh, yeah, Jeremy. Charlie and I, <laughs> University of Chicago, Milton Friedman. Uh, what happened to quantities? Uh, well, you, you know, I, I think when, you know, people rates. keep on saying to me, yeah, what happened to Milton Friedman quantity theory? I, I, you know, when you really read Friedman, it, it's very interesting because he stressed that it's not just the monetary base of reserves that needs to be expanded. It's M1 or M2. And he, of course, focused on, on M2. Uh, with all the flooding of reserves and they became excess reserves, it didn't go into it M2. Did, it didn't go mm -hmm. into M2. And so the question is now, how can the, can the Fed right. get it into M2? Um, I, so one thing you might you might think, why, don't, why, don't, why don't they get rid of interest on excess reserves? Well, that would collapse the interest rate to zero, and you have the same problem. <laughs> Let me tell you. you. Know, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> no, I'm not sure. What. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you have to shrink reserves. Uh, no, with the, the excess reserves, with all those excess reserves. Although right now we, we had a little debate going down here about how much excess reserves there really is. But in an excess reserves regime where there's a lot of them, they're supporting it by the IOER. If they just suddenly left it, all those excess reserves would be flooded on the market and go to zero, just like we had it for five and, years. And, and, and M2 would grow like crazy. No, it wouldn't grow at all. It'd stay as excess reserves. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of agree with Jeremy. I, you know, I don't think I'm a, I'm a former banker. I don't think you can make bankers lend. Yeah, they have to uh, lend. Sort of indiscriminately, simply because you've cut uh, the deposit rate that they earn at the Fed. Remember, Charlie, back in the recession period, our frustration that we, you know, we had cut the the policy rate to effectively zero, and the banks said there is no loan demand out there, and we're not lending. And furthermore, they were tightening; uh, they were tightening the uh, lending criteria. And I don't think that has changed. Uh, that's probably, in many respects, good for the banking system and its integrity. But uh, the, the banks are still uh, rather cautious about lending. I don't know if you've had the mind-numbing experience of refinancing your mortgage, but <laughs> I went through that this 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 fall, and it was uh, it was. Unbelievable! The requirements to uh, didn't Bernanke have trouble refinancing uh, too, if yeah. I remember after he <laughs> left the Fed chair. Yeah. And they're, now they're literally giving money away in Europe, and and is that helping their banks get loans out? Apparently there? not. I mean, you can't. They're they're trying to pay banks to lend. You you know, I think the only real way to get those deposits <coughs> up. Um, you know, you know, Friedman uh, used to talk about helicopter money. You know that uh, we've. Uh, well, you know, it really is almost, you have to have almost like fiscal policy. We'll give everyone a tax cut and we'll give everyone a deposit. Uh, and, and that's it. And those deposits would go up. I mean, that's it. And that, that would increase liquidity and do it. That's why I but think it is, it, is, it, is, it is actually a fiscal action. Well, certainly helicopter money is a fiscal action. Yeah, it's but, a but fiscal I, action. And that's, you know, we, basically we're going to give everyone their bank accounts $1,000. But this we, discussion is exactly the discussion the Fed ought to be having. Yes, in terms of, yeah. if you look at something yeah. like M2, I don't want to carry this analogy too far, but if you look at M2, the growth of money yeah. is measured by M2. Of course, yeah. the Fed got rid of M3, so we can't use that anymore. No. <laughs> but if you look at quantities um, and look over the whole 10-year period, not you know month to month or even year to year necessarily, you know the growth of it's M2. Well, it hadn't been that smooth necessarily, but what it has been is pretty consistent, yeah, consistent with, in fact, the inflation rate that we've gotten. Yeah. I mean, roughly speaking, not precisely. And so yeah. maybe the answer here, and I'm posing this as a question as rather than something that I know, maybe the answer is, is the Fed's tools, maybe they need to go back to looking at quantities in, in some form or another. Exactly how they do that and how they would choose to increase the quantities if that what they chose to do is a question we've been talking about. But, but you know, I think that ought to be the question this strategy is looking at because it hasn't been successful. Yeah, base alone and excess reserves alone does very little to stimulate. I mean, oh, yeah. and, 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 and so – I mean, it, it's it's interesting because you the know the money multiplier collapsed. It with, collapsed. The, with with the creation of interest on reserves. Yeah, it just yeah. But uh, you know, one of when you when you read Friedman's monetary history and you read the chapter on the Great Contraction and he has the graphs. The base was going up. 
um, at that time. Of course, currency was being doing, and 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 he, you know, he he said you looked at M1 and M2, and they collapsed right with prices and everything right. like that. And there's right. a question of just increasing that base was not was not enough. Was not enough. I mean, we did learn. What happened, of course, in the Great Depression is that uh, reserves left the bank because of the panics, and that contracted the money supply by 30%. At least the great thing the Fed did was flood enough reserves to prevent that contraction, and that's what I think. Well, they were also responding to gold flows. Back then, but yeah, I'm yeah. talking about the Fed in the recent crisis oh, I made the, sure the that they the flooded. Point. There wouldn't have been that what happened in the 30s, right. so it's, you know, that contraction that we had at that particular point. Let me just quickly reintroduce our guests. We have Charlie Plosser, Dennis Lockhart, two former Federal Reserve Bank presidents. Uh, we're talking about monetary policy here. Is is what we're talking about, you know, there's this whole notion about central bank independence. And if we're talking about, well, can the Fed actually move inflation? Is this really a case for this modern monetary theory where you need fiscal coordination supported by the central banks? Is, is some of this... I, I am um, very, very doubtful about modern monetary <laughs> theory. Uh, it's a. I'm uh, terrified. I think <laughs> it's it's a it's really a, a, a almost weird theory. And and here's the premise: if you issue debt, government debt, in your own currency, then there is no limit on how much debt you can accrue. I, I don't buy that at all. I, I can't tell you how or when, but I think uh, our current path is going to lead ultimately to uh, some kind of a reckoning. And, uh, you know, I just am I'm fiscally conservative. It's not I've never been a policymaker in that field, but I just can't buy the idea that uh, you have a free lunch is what it amounts to. Well, I Go ahead, Charlie. Uh, I was going to say, I, I we all have comments on this. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree with Dennis 100%. And in fact, I'd go a step further that um, markets, as soon as you enter into such a policy path, um, MMT seems to suggest you can put off the day of reckoning for perhaps a long time. Um, but as soon as markets realize that that's the game you're playing, that day of reckoning will come sooner. <laughs> Now proponents, rather, proponents, rather than, rather than they point to Japan. Yeah, that's the first Japan thing is mind. well over two hundred percent government debt to GDP, and in the United States we're about seventy-eight percent. I mm. think is the most recent number. Um, so why not be more like Japan? Well, one reason is because the government debt is almost entirely held domestically in Japan, and yet our our uh, debt performance or behavior is at the mercy of global markets. Uh, half of the debt is roughly is is held by uh, foreign central banks and, and that's what sovereign wealth funds day and of such. reckoning up yeah so you know we have to think of our affairs as being sort of under the microscope of the whole world japan has basically got a much more docile domestic uh, investor base and they can operate differently. And it's now the Bank of Japan, right? Like they're they have negative rates. The Bank of Japan is buying every bond the government issues, and it's amazing the currency only goes up and not down. You know, modern monetary theory sort of says the deficit doesn't matter until it does. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> um, and 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 let's let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm uh, being a devil's advocate. Um, uh, the deficit has been huge over, since the financial crisis, um, and rates have gone down dramatically on, on that debt. Um, uh, you know, remember when Simpson Bowles was traveling around everybody? And, and what was that, yeah, 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah, 10 years ago, saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling, you just wait. Even Greenspan, I said, oh, the day of wrecking come much faster than we thought, blah, 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 blah. Where are they now? No one wants to invite them anymore. Um, I mean, are they eventually right? Are they right too late? I mean, what, what, what are the sources? And Charlie and I were actually sort of talking a little bit about that before the program of this massive demand for government debt. How long can it continue to keep rates at these levels? It, you know, this situation could continue for a long time. Yeah. And and if you follow the CBO projections of national debt. Uh, you can see them uh, see U.S. national debt of above 100 percent of GDP, and we could still be in a relatively benign environment. I can't tell you when this will come home to roost. 
or exactly how it will. But um, I think there, there are so many unintended consequences of big policy, um, big policy actions or inactions that uh, it's appropriate to be cautious about this and say that this is just unhealthy. Professor, you, unintended consequences can loom large mm -hmm. here. You once commented on the show that maybe they should just borrow until rates actually go up. Is that? Well, I, I said the following. I mean, people, you know, and I travel around talking about the economy and, and everything like that. And, and a big question, Dr. Siegel, you know, um, is, is our government ever going to do anything about the deficit? And my point is they will not until rates go up. There will not be any political will to do anything about the deficit until the rates go up. And if you go in history, that's actually what it was. Reagan tax cut, a lot of great things. It was a little too big. Rates went up. He had to back down. The same thing with the Bush. The deficit got high. People said, I'm not taking these bonds. Homeowners, builders start screaming and everyone. It has those consequences. You'll get political action. Until then, you will get zero political action. Jeremy, let me, let me make a point that often is lost on people I, I chat with on this subject, and that is that we're not going to repay the debt. The objective really should be to get the ratio of debt to GDP in a comfortable range mm -hmm. and to get the arrow pointed in the right direction in the relatively near term, which would be moving back in the direction of a, of a much healthier debt to GDP ratio. So you have two variables there. The debt, not going to be repaid, and it probably is going to grow and GDP. So the question is, is it plausible that GDP is going to grow fast enough to change that ratio uh, to the positive? Uh, and th that, I think, even if it hasn't been explicit, has been a debate in the, in the air for the last two or three years. The tax cut was supposed to produce sustained growth above 3%. Hasn't played out that way. I'm of the view that if you're going to place bets, you place bet a, a, a bigger bet on a 2% growth rate going forward than a 3 or 3-plus three percent growth rate going forward. Therefore, we're unlikely to be able to grow our way into a better ratio. And that's a very, very thorny problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I well, mean, this plays back, Jeremy, to our conversation about the neutral rate and what productivity growth is and whether or not real growth can grow fast enough to, I mean, you know, the U.S. had debt to GDP ratio of 140% at the end of World War II. The world didn't come crashing down. I, I agree with that. It, but, but it went all the way down in the next it, 30 years. In the next 30 years, we grew our way out of it. Uh, yeah. And that's certainly a feasible strategy. And frankly, it's like Modigliani Miller theorem. We don't know what the optimal debt to GDP ratio is, it's, right? We, should, we just there's no there's not much theory about that, and it may vary for different countries and for different reasons, as we as you know as, as Dennis alluded to. So it really is a thorny problem, but you're putting an awful lot of risk on the table, you know, to to pursue that. When when we look forward. Let's talk a little bit of, you know, about that. We, we have about a $22 trillion. I'm taking the gross debt over here. Um, if we have 2% real growth and 2% inflation, it's 4%. Um, that's 90, uh, so that's $900 billion that we could grow and keep it in line, no, not increasing relative to GDP. We're above that now, but the big danger is we all know with the entitlements into the future, unless they're reformed, this does blow up. Actually, without that, it's just minorly going up. But you take the CBO, which I think is a great organization, by the way, and, and, and does great long-term uh, research. You, you, we all know Social Security, particularly Medicare, much more than that, will cause that ratio to explode going forward. And I'm, I'm a believer that uh, demographics, uh, if, if, if not destiny, at least is a major factor in, in the world today and major factor in terms of aggregate demand. Charlie's talked about aggregate demand and a major factor in terms of government deficit and, and, and debt. And um, you can't deny the reality of people living longer, U.S. 
retirees at 10,000 a day, I think, is the, is the mm. statistic, uh, adding to the, the base of, of uh, entitlements. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and until we tackle that issue, everything else in, is, is chicken feed, really, relative mm. to dealing with the entitlements. Well, I, I think, it, and it is, as a dentist, the demographic is driving a lot of this, but, it's, but the danger really is that it's interacting with legal issues, entitlement programs, okay, uh, rather than letting people retire later, they pretend to retire earlier. That raises the burden. But the other piece is, look, demographics could not grow at all. And if you have zero productivity growth, you still get declining living. You can get declining or diminishing or stable living standards. Demographics matters, but if you have pro- strong productivity growth, you can offset a so lot of that. We don't need population growth. You're saying to uh, yeah, improve we don't the standard. Need, of we don't need population growth. If you theory, have productivity, if you growth, have productivity yeah. growth, so it's a or, balancing. Or put, put differently, if if you don't have population growth, then you need productivity growth. Right. But so it's balanced, Dennis's it's, point it's, is it's, that given the entitlement structure we have now and people growing low, it does impact. Oh, I'm just saying yeah. is that there are three pieces here. Yeah. There's productivity growth, there's right. entitlement programs, and then there's population well, growth. Let's, let's, and they interact Charlie, with each other. Charlie, let's talk about that. I, I'm interested in your views. What's getting in the way of, uh, of uh, accelerating productivity growth? This, we only have two minutes, so uh, it's quick. <laughs> I don't in, in two minutes. I don't. Yeah, I don't entirely know, Dennis. I don't think economists understand productivity growth very well, much less able to predict it. Yeah, uh, I think there are talked long, about it a bit I, on our I, show. I think there's some long-term issues. I don't think it's going to be solved short-term. I, th- I think there is some measurement problem. I think there's a little more underestimation um, on the price level, given what's going on digitally but and, I think and it, everywhere else. I think it's a little higher. I'm not saying it explains the whole gap. But I do think it's a little bit higher. But I think there are education issues. I think there are regulatory issues. There are lots of things that can get in the way of productivity growth. And I think policy would be, in the country, would be well advised to try to focus on those sorts of issues in the hope of improving productivity. 100%. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Charlie and Dennis, thank you so much for spending time with here with us here at the Wharton School. You can listen to these similar conversations at the Global Interdependence Center. I'm sure you guys stay involved in all their regional conferences. Professor Siegel, thanks for getting up early, coming to the studio. <laughs> I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We have our producers, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week as well. Uh, have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.